What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Crazy Face Uno podcast. I'm your host, Shane McNeely. Just a reminder, Crazy Face Uno is inspiring others to do good, make a difference in our local and global community. And today, I have a fantastic guest. I have been looking forward to this for a few days now since we've talked. Tyler Dunning, everyone. Welcome, Tyler. Oh, thank you. Hi. Hi. I have <laughs> I've honestly been really looking forward to uh, this conversation. You are someone I definitely like look up to and respect a lot and the things that you've done and that you're doing and thank you very very much for being on the podcast and spending your Saturday morning with us. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, likewise, yeah, I think um, if anything this is just a good opportunity for us to reconnect. Uh, we haven't definitely. spoken in a while, so Yeah. Um, and that leads to how we met maybe. Um I, I guess, yeah. Do you remember do you remember the first time us meeting? I have a vague recollection. Um, it was during it was during a nonprofit Invisible Children tour. Yes. To my recollection, I think we came to your university in Minnesota. It was uh, in Indiana, yeah, Bethel Bethel Indiana, College at the time right. that is now Bethel University. Yeah, you oh, and your team. Congratulations, Bethel. I know, growing. Look at that. Yeah. Making making yeah, we moves. Came through. Yeah. And you hosted one of our presentations. Right. Yeah. You correct. were the point of contact. Correct. Yep. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember showing up. Um, I remember there being. It was like a quaint little campus, very nice. Yeah. There was a pond or something. You had a table set up outside. It was a good review buddies nailed it uh Looking yeah i remember it quite well um that's awesome and i just remember you had a lot of energy <laughs> yeah that's, that's pretty that's pretty accurate which is where the the name came from you know college that was my college days crazy face who know was uh <laughs> crazy face in general was my my nickname in college my freshman year i've told this story before on the podcast but i think it's always good because it's just an odd name yeah, and just I mean, random um I was on the bus, so I, I played soccer, I had a small scholarship, and our preseason my freshman year was, you know, me trying to make the varsity team and whatever, but we were on the bus, and uh, one of the English guys, he he from England, and he was sitting behind me, and we were talking, and I made some weird face or did something, and he was like, man, you have a crazy face, and he's like, that's what, that's what we're going to call you, crazy face, and I was like, Okay, and so he like yells back in the back of the bus, like, "Hey, so and so, like, this is gonna be crazy face now." And so school hadn't even started, and I had already been given a nickname, and uh, so I, I went by many different uh, names, but crazy face, crazy craze, you know, just different, different little bits of that. But it's always been, uh, I don't know, I've used crazy face, and then Uno is just. It's one, and I, for whatever reason, I had this adverse reaction or adverse uh, desire to use, like, the number one or those numbers and like, when you're creating profiles or usernames. Mm-hmm. I hate that. I think it, it looks, I don't know. I just don't like it. And so, sure. Uno. You know, you know, whatever you want to say. Like, it's just fun. So, uh, yeah. that's where the name came from. And I had different inspirations along the way with Crazy Face Uno. And one was Mr. Beast, who is a YouTube star guy. And I was like, if you can have a name like Mr. Beast, 
then Crazy Face Uno is fine. Like, it's just a brand name yeah, or it's just so. a name. I, I don't know. So here we go. Here's Crazy Face yeah. Uno. <laughs> now the legacy lives on. Yep. Yep. No looking back. Um, yeah, so Invisible Children was how we first met. And it's also, I would say, like how we became friends as well. Because later on, um, I volunteered my, my, my life to Invisible Children uh, as a, what we called Invisible Children roadies. And uh, that's where I met you. You were interning there. Or you were working for Invisible yeah. Children as well. And um, we had yeah, a... Yeah, I also, also saved just, uh, signed that waiver and that gave them my life. Yes, yes. <laughs> you, it's, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we also had a bonding moment, moment over wrestling. Right, I, I really feel like that's when the connection that was uh, it. deepened, uh, was was the mutual connection over wrestling. Yeah, yeah, and I want to get into that because we've got sure. you've got some stories. But first, sure. let me just plug who you are a little bit. You're an author okay. and a writer. That's the those are the two things that I think of most when I think of you, Tyler. Um, okay. As as an author and writer, I think that that's a, a big part of your story would you agree yeah certainly i mean it's something i invest a lot of time into yeah so I, I don't think that's an inaccurate yeah assumption on your part um and you've that's i guess that's that's those those are the those are the things that i would um associate with you what how would you describe yourself or how what would you say that um if you were going to introduce our listeners to you what would you say? Good question. Uh, I would say, I mean, the thing, the thing about writing really is that it's somewhat of a vessel into other pursuits. And for me, I mean, I, I do love just the inherent craft of writing. Like my favorite part about it is generating beautiful sentences. Yeah. So I, uh, I would say like more literary in terms, uh, you know, on the spectrum of writing. I don't really care as much about plot or content. I just like yeah. sentences. But within that, the things that I kind of write about most would be uh, like nature-related things, yeah, uh, trauma-related things, mental illness. Uh, I'm, I'm very much like an expressionist writer, um, a very personal writer, uh, which isn't like the most respected form of writing within the creative nonfiction field at the moment people oftentimes want you to remove yourself from the i and the me and the self why do you think Uh, that is i think it's because uh, there's a history uh, specifically within um, nonfiction writing that comes out of journalistic trends where for several decades really the focus was on reporting things happening out kind of beyond Mm. yourself so then uh, maybe in like the 60s or 70s when that form of writing became a little more internalized. People sure. looked at it as a, kind of like a secondary form of the art. Um, and I think because it's, it, it can seem a bit like masturbatory in a way, like you're just kind of either pleasing yourself through the writing or congratulating yourself. But I think at least with our generation and maybe a couple before us, it really became more of this cathartic therapeutic thing where people turn toward like memoir as these guiding points on, on how to get through 
I would say, traumatic and dramatic life experiences. Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. Um, which is, would you say that that was like maybe part of your book then that you wrote, which is the name is A Field Guide uh, to Losing Your Friends? Yeah, and I would say that the process of getting to that finalized product of the book was really organic where I was trying to force myself uh, into being a different a different type of writer and this was kind of really in the early phases of me saying okay I'm going to take this more seriously and, and maybe even pursue it as something more than a hobby and so in that I was writing a lot of fiction uh, whether it was long form novel or yeah. a short story and those things those are kind of what I think people gravitate toward when they first get in to like a literary pursuit and so mm-hmm. I, was, I was working in that medium and in the midst of these things, I was always pulled back and drawn to these cathartic essays, mostly around the theme of loss and grief. Yeah. And so I kept writing and generating these things on the side to the point where I, I then soon recognized a thread throughout them. And I said, oh, there's something more here than just these one-off stories that I'm doing kind of cathartically. And then sure. when it came down to it, I said, you know, I need to focus my efforts on one of these projects because I had kind of myriad in the works and i said this one feels the best right now this is the type of writing i like to do the most so i, I focused yeah. on that six years later finished this little little manuscript of grief and loss and nature yeah do you want to do you mind kind of giving us a little more background on on your book uh, a field guide to losing sure. your friends listen if you're if you're listening um it's really a fantastic book i have Obviously, a lot of the names in there I'm familiar with, Tyler, but um, I, I've i given it to, I actually loaned my book out. I don't, I don't even have it with me uh, anymore. I loaned it to a friend to read, um, and, and he's reading it now. But uh, it's a really great book. You can purchase that book. I'm assuming it's on Amazon? It is, yeah. And is it available through your website? It is, yes. So tylerdunning.com. Uh, you can go there and buy his book, A Field Guide to Losing Your Friends, uh, Essays on Loss. Um, please go check that out. It's a great book. With that said, would you mind telling us a little bit of the backstory and a little bit about your book? Sure. Um, the book the book came about uh, really like the inciting incident of it that kind of drives the narrative throughout the book is that... Uh, in 2010, Invisible Children lost uh, kind of a key player and a yeah. big friend to the organization. His name was Nate Hen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was over in Uganda, kind of witnessing firsthand a lot of the things we worked so ardently toward in in the efforts of you know bringing a little stability back to northern Uganda. And while he was there during the World Cup soccer match, a series of eruptions went off. There was terrorist attacks and. Uh, him as well as I believe 76 others were murdered that evening Uh, and so that kind of led me down this path where just a few days after that incident I moved to Estes Park Colorado to start working at this wedding chateau just outside Rocky Mountain National Park yeah and I found myself you know in this tumultuous time of dealing with this specific type of grief always going out into the national park and hiking and the thing about that job is that we'd work early in the mornings and we'd work late into the nights but we always kind of had our afternoons off so yeah i utilized that time 
to hit the trails. And I was often doing that alone, but really starting to find that uh, going out into nature, witnessing the flora and fauna and really studying it, researching it, um, led to this path of healing. Yeah. So I questioned it, you know, and said, like, if this one national park can be so cathartic, what would happen if I visited more of these reputable places that, um, you know, our United States government has deemed national parks? And so I said, well, maybe I should try to visit all of them and kind of set myself on this quest to visit all the U.S. national parks, uh, to which I've currently been to 55 of the 61. Wow, but that's awesome. That journey, yeah, it's been a great journey, and I mean, I've seen really remarkable places mm-hmm. across the country from you know alaska to american samoa to florida down where you live yeah and uh but through that journey um you know along the way other friends passed away and the book really recounts these losses right in um, earlier losses in my life too really the first of which um was a, a young man named shane who passed away in a bridge jumping accident yeah um, i think i was maybe 17 or 18 at the time and uh, he was he was a good friend of mine from the wrestling team, bringing it back to our initial yeah. plug for that. Um, but that was my first real lesson in hard loss. Uh, and then moving forward, um, unfortunately, I've had a good handful of people pass away at young ages from yeah. you know various accidents or diseases or yeah. murder or you know self inflicted slaughter. Um, yeah. But the book, I mean, the underlying theme of the book, too, is that I myself have struggled with depression and suicidality since the age of 14. So right. um, I've had this intimate, close relationship with death, mostly because I've contemplated killing myself uh, so much. Yeah. Um, it really shifts your perspective and um, changes your, your consciousness in certain ways that uh, to then reflect and put this stuff down on page felt important to me, I think, and it, it felt necessary. And certainly it has led to a lot of healing in my own life. Yeah. Uh, really, the, but um, kind of the the capstone of this book is that I, I set this goal after Nate had passed away saying, you know, if I want to get to the highest point in northern Colorado, Long's Peak at 14,259 feet. And I said, if I could get over that mountain, maybe I can get over this loss. It was a kind of a naive childish thought, but it was a way to process the pain in a very tangible, tangible, physical way. So I tried to summit that mountain, um, that first summer after his passing and I failed because I kind of went the wrong way and went toward what is called the false keyhole. Uh, where the, the actual keyhole leads sure. you to the top of the summit. And so then um, I think four years later, uh, I, I returned to that mountain and, and finished that goal, summited. And, yeah. But in the process, when I was nearing the top, I came upon a dead body. And, and that's kind of the final chapter of the book. And it, yeah. it ties it all together because here I was thinking I was finally overcoming that grief and getting to the top of that mountain and in doing so I was confronted with death yet again of this young man who ultimately had committed suicide and um, launched himself off of one of the cliff faces up there yeah and so uh, it really made me have to recapitulate and process these things that I had compartmentalized and things that I thought I had processed when ultimately I hadn't it was as if the world was saying you know 
death will always be a part of this journey, regardless of how hard you try to overcome it. Mm. Instead of trying and making it an adversary and something that you can contend with, make it a part of the journey, make it something that's collaborative and recognize that. And I, I think this is something I've learned from nature is, you know, you look at any natural process and there is death, decay, mulch, re- rebirth, growth. Yeah. This cycle always continues. And these are less, these are obvious lessons that get taught to us um, in the day to day life, but things that we often ignore and push aside. And, uh, and then we treat death as something that is unnatural and we, you know, dress bodies up in, in paint and put them in caskets and yeah. display them. And we don't ever really see death for what it is. And that is, this gift back to the earth in terms of, you know, bioorganic mass that lets other things grow. Yeah. Yeah. Which nature does. Yeah. Yeah. Sure does. Um, this story in, in your book has, you, you were actually on TEDx teen. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, that was a fun, that, I mean, as with any art, artistic endeavor, sometimes it opens doors into pathways you never really anticipated or expected, right. even though I think uh, in the back of our minds, these are things we're always hoping for, and we always want that attention and that praise, mm-hmm. and praise and recognition that you've done something important. Uh, yeah. I do, that with, I do that with quote fingers for the listeners. Uh, but you, So with the book... Um, it also a good friend of ours, Chad Clendenin. Yeah. He had heard me read an excerpt from it several years ago, and after that, he he messaged me and said, "Hey, I would I would really like to make a short film out of what you read." And mm-hmm. I said, "Sure," not really thinking anything would ever come to fruition because artistic endeavors often get stemmed for myriad reasons. Yeah, um, but it came to fruition, and he he ended up making this beautiful fourteen minute short film based off of excerpts from the book also called a field guide to losing your friend yeah and so him and i we released the book in the film on the same day and on that day i got a, a phone call that the, you know the producer of tedx teen wanted to bring me out to london for to do a tedx presentation to which i said you know i'm not a teen uh i'm a 33 year old man at that point <laughs> And yeah. she said, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You'll be amongst other people of varying ages. And uh, I took her word on that. Bless yeah. her heart. And when I got out there, I was by far the oldest person there. <laughs> uh, there was like, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds doing amazing things, yeah. uh, giving amazing presentations. And there was one other person who was older than me. He was, uh, I want to say like a 98-year-old man, but he, he video conferenced in, so he wasn't okay. actually there physically. Yeah. And I gave the, you know, I'm talking to this crowd of teenagers, giving them this soliloquy on death, and I don't know if it landed. Yeah. Um, you know, kind Little. of in the, the interims, the intermissions where people could kind of mingle with all the presenters. Everyone was flocking to these kids talking about technological advances and stuff like that. Yeah. Like two people came over to me and said, hey, you remind me of David Foster Wallace, who was a, a writer that yeah committed suicide ultimately i was like that's high praise yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um well I, I i mean regardless i guess once those videos are are posted i mean it's open to everyone whether it says tedx teen in the back or not you know and um yeah true and so, that it's what's funny about that too is um when you're 
preparing for something like a TEDx presentation, yeah, the you know they're they're constantly telling you that these things are going to be repurposed for the internet, and really that's the main focus of them. Yeah. So don't, and because of that, they say like don't focus on being present that evening. So mm. for example, they would say like don't reference other people's talks or sure. don't reference the theme of the night. Sure. Stuff like that. And so there becomes this disconnect really between you and the crowd because yeah. you can't you can't build those bonds between the intimacy right. of the evening. Which any and public so think, speaker knows that that's like how you engage yeah. your audience. And so Yeah, it's counterintuitive to um, kind of the natural training of a public speaker. Right. Uh, but it's true. I mean, then you, you kind of focus on these things and that you get product that then lives on the internet and hopefully finds a new life in that way. Yeah, sure, sure. What's funny about it, though, is like uh, in those initial months and you know years since the, the talk came out, I think it came out over two years ago at this point, mm-hmm. I would go you know, onto YouTube and just like track how many views it had and how many comments it had and mm-hmm. really try to generate some self-worth out of that. And really all that happened was I would read the comments and people would say like really her like, horrendous shit yeah and then i'd feel bad for like a week yeah and uh so i just said you know i can't do this anymore yeah (laughs) yeah i i think well and man i'm trying to decide which direction to take this because i've got so many questions and thoughts it kind of reminds me you know invisible children uh we went through uh, as a as a company, we went through some trauma ourselves uh, in, in 2012, and you were one of the people that came back and volunteered your time. Um, sorry, I get emotional about this every time I like talk about it. And uh, but you um, you volunteered your time to to take on some of the the worst, and um, you took some of those calls that people we're just beating us up and people that we cared about and uh which is also really hard and unhealthy and and a difficult thing to deal with you know um I don't know why I'm crying right now but so here we are (laughs) uh uh, I'm pulling myself together here sorry um keep it together man yeah (laughs) um but yeah I don't know that that's like uh I I think about you guys in those scenarios so often, actually, and I think it really speaks to the people that spent their time with Invisible Children and and gave their time and, like we said in the beginning, signed their lives away, uh, too, of your willingness to come back and to meet a need, and that was the need, and... um, to trudge through some of that crap. And, and it's so prevalent in today's society. And honestly, that's one of the biggest motivators, not this specific uh, instance, but like just the negativity that's out in the world and on yeah. social media and um, on YouTube channels or whatever it is in, yeah. in our freaking media, you know, like I, I just don't like the negativity. I don't like the, the fear. I don't like, I don't like that. I, I, try to avoid it myself and so um one of the the like pieces of crazy face uno is positivity and telling positive stories and um i want to be i want crazy face uno to be a place of of positivity 
and I want I wanted to shine a, a positive light on the world and um, whether it's through storytelling and, and stories and, and being able to tell your own story to um, the different causes that we become and, and, and join in and be a part of um, in the future. But side note on, on that, but yeah, that's, that's really, thank you. And thank you for sharing your story and thank you for being um, a part of Invisible Children and a part of that, that story as well. <laughs> of course. But now I have to ditch like, 75% of the content I was going to talk about because it's so negative. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, Tyler. Dang I was it. I'm going to speak ill of everybody that we know. <laughs> yeah, I know that's not true. But um, what what is the process like for you of writing? And um, I know at least since I've known you, even back in Invisible Children, I know that writing was always like maybe it was just the therapeutic part, but you've always really made time for, for writing and be very disciplined. I feel like in that, uh, that part of your life, as well as like preparing for a Ted talk, which, um, you know, I know you've done some writing. I'm sure you did some writing with that as well. And processing, is that how you process things? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm a slow writer for sure. Uh, I think John Muir said, uh, writing is like the life of a glacier. It's one eternal grind. Mm. And it's accurate, very accurate. And the thing about writing and literature is that it's such a, a slowly produced art and also a slowly consumed art. So it doesn't really adhere nicely to our current trends of instant gratification. And that be- can become really um, disheartening and frustrating. And uh, an example would be, I mean, the book is a good example on that. Yeah, It took me about you know, six years to produce that book. And it's quite, it's quite short. It's like 180 pages in total, if I remember correctly. Um, ultimately, it was about a 300-page book, but then I cut about half of it out. Yeah. Which isn't uncommon in the, in the literary process. Um, but even so, some of those stories that ended up in there were even older than that, maybe written 10 years ago. And so by the time it was released in 2017, this stuff was already about a decade old to me. And then yeah. people were consuming it and reading it and saying like, I, whatever reaction they had, I would then react to that through this lens of a decade. Mm-hmm. So it's new to them, very old to me. And that's, there's a weird disconnect there between um, producer and consumer. Sure. Whereas someone like a musician could write a song today and per- perform it tomorrow and really gauge how the crowd reacts to that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for in, that that took a lot of learning on my part and patience and practice. So now, for example, like before um, you called me, I was going through a writing session and I try to sit down and do like three hour increments. Yeah. And I'm working on a story now, knowing that this thing might not um, come to fruition and reach an audience for a year, two years, three years, ten years. Yeah. And you have to be okay well, with that. That's yeah. That's uh. That's intense. That's hard. That's like, that's mental toughness and like a discipline and like beyond anything that I can comprehend. To be completely honest. Yeah, and that kind of gets back to your original question, where uh, people so often come to me and say, like, "What are your habits? What are your patterns? How do you stay focused? How do you produce?" the content at the cadence that you do. Mm -hmm. And I have this very unfair advantage over most people in that I want to kill myself most days. 
Yeah. Um, and I don't say that flippantly or wantonly, but I, yeah. I've always had, um, I, sh- you know, I struggle daily with my suicidal tendencies. Yeah. And the one thing that really brings uh, peace back, you know, peace and uh, balance back to my unstable brain chemistry is writing. And yeah. so for me, it's not a matter of like, am I going to have the gumption to sit down and write today? It's a matter of like, I have to sit down and write today if yeah. I want to be a healthy individual and someone who's enjoyable to be around. Yeah. It alters my moods in it. Uh, so, I mean, that that's first and foremost why I do it. A byproduct of that is having content that I can share with people. And luckily, I enjoy sharing stuff with people. Yeah. So I continue to do so. But I think writing will forever be a process that I pursue in my life simply, simply by means of then processing whatever's being filtered through my mind, my life, my body, yeah. my community. And so in that, I never wanted to be a writer. It wasn't like I was young saying, I, mean, I want to grow up and be a writer. I didn't pursue writing through the education system, even though I, I think I did well. Some of my English teachers saw some talent there, but one, and what I recognized is when I was working at Invisible Children with you, that's a, it's a really emotional, difficult you know, thing to be, fully dedicating and volunteering your life to something that is dealing with, you know, some of these base tragic elements of the human condition. Yeah. And so to process that, I was always writing these weird little short stories. And some of our co- cohort was recognizing that saying, Tyler, will you read us some of your stories and, and will you put these on a blog? And that was kind of the, the initial groundswell of what became my writing career. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you've got a, a, a newsletter that you produce as well, uh, a monthly I do, newsletter. Yeah. Um, I know I've I've shared that newsletter with a few friends, and I know that there's a few people that really enjoy that and really uh, love your writing and love your style. And I think you have a really unique voice, and like through your writing, that is. Oh, thank you. That's, it's different. It's it's, it's not your typical what you sit down and read, you know, and I think it draws people in and it's enticing and, and it's, uh, it's good. It's, it's enjoyable. It's, it's fun to read and fun to be a part of you. You have a way of painting a story and painting a picture that, um, is unique, I think. And, and everybody try, you know, every writer tries to paint a, a picture, but you have a very specific way of doing that. And I think it's, uh, it's special. So keep up the oh, good work. You. Yeah. Yeah. I want to maybe touch on, the mental health aspect you've you've brought sure. this up a couple of times and i know throughout your book you you talk about it what are other things obviously writing is a huge part of your mental health and and staying healthy and being um the best version of yourself and to combat yeah. some of those what are other ways that you're you know dealing with your mental health and um what are some ways that you would encourage other people that maybe have uh, are going through something similar or have uh, some of the same thoughts or um, yeah. that deal with mental mental illness or mental health as well? Yeah, it's a good question. And th- those are, these are things that I, I love pursuing. And if I, you know, back to your very original question, I, I, if I was to categorize myself or label myself in some way, I would probably say that I am a mental illness writer. Okay. Much in the way someone could say, you know, I'm a travel writer or you know, all the different genres that yeah. we've since created, but travel is the, always... the outcome or it's the, it's the process that's helping yeah. the, the, the route. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
but mental illness is always kind of what I'm drawn back to and what my focus yeah. is around. Um, that's a tough question though, because it, it is so loaded because mental, mental illness, mental health, whatever you want to call it, yeah. uh, it can come through in so many different ways and the human brain. I mean, we, we still don't know much about it. Yeah. And so these things, these are ongoing research studies and, um, Unfortunately, I think in a lot of ways we, as with any sort of ailment with the body, we look for these quick fixes where sure. you can either um, take a pill or, you know, Big Pharma has such a hand in a lot of this stuff and uh, miscommunicates a lot of information um, to the point where, like, you know, I, I was just listening to a podcast the other day. No offense, I'm not cheating on you. But, uh, <laughs> no, I listen to other and, podcasts too. It's okay. <laughs> Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, I don't um, just sit and listen to my own podcast on repeat. Oh, um, that's what I envisioned. I know. Uh, I, I should. Maybe I, I should. Read, <laughs> I only read my own writing. <laughs> uh, but this, and I, I mean, I don't even know how true this is because uh, who knows the level of expertise of podcast uh, yeah. goers. But anyway, yeah. this person was saying um, that there really is no hard data that says, you know, like chemical imbalance in the brain leads to something like depression or anxiety where someone can have a lot of serotonin and still be depressed or vice versa not have much serotonin and not be depressed but yeah. it's this narrative that we keep telling ourselves that there is a chemical imbalance in the brain yeah. and that then you have to take some sort of drug to rectify that um these are things i've always been apprehensive of and even from an early age since i was 14 uh, same timing as the onset of my depression, um, I made this choice in my life, which I no longer adhere to, but I became straight edge. And yeah. I didn't even know what that was at the time. I was living in Montana. There was nobody up there that was straight edge. There wasn't the social, me- social media that there is now. And so I was just this like little you know farm kid that said, you know, I don't want to take prescription medicine. I don't want to drink caffeine. I don't want to drink alcohol. And I think that was a byproduct of looking around my community, especially in rural Montana, and seeing how destructive things like tobacco and alcohol can be in households and people's lives and in community. And so I just chose to completely disengage from that. And so and up until the age of about 25, I never had a drink of alcohol. I never, uh, I wouldn't drink caffeine, things like that. And so that obviously carries through throughout your life in, in different capacities. And so now when I look at something like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, I'm like, I don't know if I want to put that in my body because I don't ultimately know what it's going to do to my brain chemistry long term. And yeah. if I ever get off the drug and you hear these stories of people that are you know, on ramping and then they have heightened uh, desires within you know, suicidality and yeah. you get off the drug similarly. And, those sort of things just really scare me. So I think I kind of subconsciously chose to do it my own way, which has been focusing on exercise, focusing on diet, focusing on things that I know trigger me, um, focusing on things that I know do help, like writing. Um, but the, the baseline of my life is, is depression. And mm-hmm. every, every choice I make throughout the day is in some way informed by that. Like, will this make me depressed? How, depressed? How will this affect my depression? What sure. will this do to my overall moods? And, um, I think every, anybody, you know, when you look at their story, there's something like that there. It's whether they've had certain trauma at a young age and they're dealing with um, 
parental issues or a lack of love or trying to compensate for that lack of love, whatever the case may be, the, yeah. the things that inform our decisions throughout the day often are, are rooted in a lot of our, uh, our youth. And so mine is depression and that's, that's what informs my life. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it sounds, it's, I mean, even going through that day, day to day is, uh, it sounds exhausting. I don't know any other way to put it, you know, of, of kind of thinking through those. Is there ways that you kind of rest your brain and, and rest yourself? Is that through writing? Is that the way that you kind of rest? No, it's, that's through Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Netflix and chill, man. Netflix and chill. Honestly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, writing is exhausting. Um, yeah. Exhausting physically, just in the in, and I don't think people think of this often, but when you're when you're actively stimulating your brain in that way, so much blood flow is going through your brain. Yeah, that, um, your your body physically gets tired. Sure. Which I enjoy. Um, so you know that's why I do it for three hour increments because I've I've recognized I can't do it longer than that. Yeah. So I might write for three hours, take a several hour break, and then write for another three hours, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I don't think it's as, as exhausting as maybe as it sounds. Okay. Just because. Um, I think I've learned to cope with it. I think sure. when I was younger to a developing mind into a mind that didn't fully understand what was happening to me yeah. physiologically, it was exhausting. But now uh, I think I have a better understanding of it and ways yeah. to cope with it. And so it, I, and I, being on the other side of it where it doesn't affect me nearly as much as it used to, um, I have an appreciation for it yeah. in some capacity where it has given me this unique perspective and it has given me you know, the ability to, to focus on writing more and get more enjoyment out of that. Yeah. It's informed my relationships. And I think, um, it, the, the more you talk about it, the more you're open about it. At least my experience has been that other people open up and talk about it too. And it's been mm-hmm. kind of a joyous experience to find a community in that. And yeah. Meet other people who are struggling in similar ways, but then to find uh, reprieve and knowing that, that we're kind of going through this together and it's, it's an epidemic. I mean, so many people are struggling with these things and it's on the rise. I mean, I think there's only one state in the, in the United States that hasn't had a rise in suicidality and that's Nevada of all places. Um, Really interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's a growing pandemic, but yeah. And and it's being uh, perpetrated by things like social media and, Mm -hmm growing pressures and I yeah. think uh, just the fact that they're like the world population is rising at such a rate sure. and so, so many more people are moving and living in urban areas I don't think that helps um, you know evolutionarily what's what our brains are meant to do and so we're struggling yeah. and with with learning how to be human beings in the 21st century and no one really knows what to do with these things that are flaring up as real major issues yeah i think we'll look back one day um in our lifetime i think we're going to look back and and look at social media and the way that the rise of social media and and some of these different platforms and the way that we uh conduct ourselves and the way that it it functions as we know it now i think we'll look back someday and and shake our heads like what were we doing um i i think it's it's got to it's got to take form in a different or take shape in a different form um as as things grow and as we 
as social media and as the internet and as uh, technology advances, it's it's just gotta it's gotta look different. It's gotta take take a different shape. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go on. I don't know. If uh, I was just gonna say that that's that's such a big issue that yeah. everyone kind of seemingly has opinions on, uh, but it's one of those things where, you know, the the sorcerer's apprentice. We've we've built a device that we're now dependent on. Yeah. And, I'm the first one to admit it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a thing. <laughs> and everyone sees the downfalls of it, um, right? But also, I mean, that's not to negate the the positivity that's come out of such things as well. I love Absolutely. Google Maps and knowing where to drive. Yeah. But um, yeah, we're we're kind of all adhering and accepting of this demon that is kind of tearing us apart socially and culturally yeah. for these minute benefits of, I don't know, complacency and comfort and yeah. the ease of, and that's not, I mean, that's not uncommon of the human history as a whole. We've, right. we're always progressing towards these things. And I mean, the industrial revolution gave us so many benefits, but also it's sure. completely destroyed our planet uh, <laughs> ecosystem. Planet. <laughs> yeah. One hundred percent. I'm right there with you. Um, which maybe leads us to, you've got a writing seminar that you're, um, going to be a part of and kind of conducting, uh, yeah. do you mind telling us about that? Sure. Yeah. It's something I'm really excited about. It's coming up in October, October 18th to the 20th, I believe. Um, awesome. this idea came out of, I mean, rooting it back to invisible children, mm-hmm. um, so many long-term friendships came out of this thing. And for me now, a lot of these friendships are a decade old. One yeah. of which uh, was with Bethany Bilesma. She's, she was a key player on the invisible children's scene. Yes. Uh, everywhere she goes, everyone loves her. Yes. And um, near and dear to my now, heart as well. I've mentioned her name course, multiple yeah. times on the podcast as well. So yeah. Um, in, in her and I now have found ourselves both living in Seattle and We've been pen pals for a long time and just um, good friends. And so we came up with this idea of doing like a therapeutic writing retreat because her training uh, in graduate graduate studies uh, brought her to counseling psychology. I myself, um, you know, a writer by trade. And so we're kind of combining those efforts and going out to Whidbey Island, which is just outside of Seattle, this beautiful kind of bucolic place uh and holding this retreat at what's called the whitby institute and there's just beautiful little cabins and space and labyrinths to walk through and good food it's just a wholesome place of regeneration kind of outside of the city and and as you know you've probably noticed trends just in my talking over this hour that i'm not much of a city dweller I, i do think humans are are better in rural uh, settings just physiologically yeah and so i think the thought in this is that especially for me making my way through the literary world there is such a a romanticism to self-destruction and mm. uh, yeah. not being well essentially so like people you know we've we've praised these authors like fitzgerald and hemingway and myriad others who uh drank themselves to death sure and produce great work but i think we've we've then equated the two and maybe made an unfair correlation saying that you have to be an alcoholic to be a writer or you have to be some sort of addict or you have to be abusive or destructive or self-loathing whatever and i think 
it's time to change that narrative. And I'm seeing that coming through in various ways, but creativity isn't born out of um, crisis, not always. And so I think it's important for writers to come together and eat good food, do yoga, support each other, create uh, healthy habits and live in this idea of wellness and train in a way like an athlete would, because if you're an athlete, you, you know, you want to be at your, your, apex for your right. sport so you train every day you treat your body with respect you treat your mind with respect uh i think the arts and creativity and entertainment is no different yeah that's awesome i I've, I've looked at i know that um bethany she's got a few different you know projects with um like with her project of different retreats and whatnot and i i looked seriously before this move i, I was looking at all of those and looking at yours and um you know, the, the writing, the writing portion and, and just putting myself into a situation or a place where you're being intentional. Um, intentionality is like in the forefront of my mind these days. And, um, whether that's friendships, you know, through some of the losses that we've had recently to, um, just my friends, I I've moved and I've gotten away from, you know, maybe my, you know, we have these friends at, from Invisible Children that live all around the country and all around the world, and it's hard to stay connected. You know, we're talking right now, and it's been a while. We haven't really had a conversation in, in a good good while. I, I can actually probably remember, I think it may be Fourth Estate was one of the, the last conversations we yeah. had. And, uh, yeah, it's just interesting when, you know, being intentional about those relationships. And for me, in some ways, this podcast has been an avenue for me to reconvene or uh, reconnect with these relationships and have, have a intentional conversation. But even outside sure. of that, having these intentional conversations. And so being intentional about writing, it's something my brain never stops and I process, process, process. And then I want to, my easiest form, I think my comfort zone is to externally process, which can be okay. Um, uh-huh. But it can also be really exhausting for the people around me, and um, yeah, so like find me. yeah, <laughs> I'm an internal processor. Right, right, and and so finding other ways to be able to process some of the things that are going through my head, and you know, with Crazy Face Uno, just being able to write and and write my thoughts, and not have to be perfect and have formulated actually formulated a sentence yet, but just put down your thoughts and put down words on a paper and move them around and figure out what that looks like. And so I think it's really cool what you're doing and and having that intentional moment of peace and being in a place where you can focus in on, on writing and on uh, what you're working on or whatever that, that is. I think that's really cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, what would you, is, is there any, where can people go to find out more information? Can they go to your website? Yeah, so if you just go to tylerdunning.com, uh, there's a lot of stuff there. And then um, the writing retreat is called Tender Wild uh, Writing Retreat. And Bethany's website, I believe, is thetenderwilds.com. Sweet. Perfect. So check that out, guys. Um, we plugged it in the beginning. This is what I'm most excited to talk about. Everything's oh, yeah. important, but... Uh, our connection to wrestling, um, and your 
the path that you've taken with that in some ways. So we both were wrestlers in high school. You were wrestling in high school. And uh, you've gotten into some, like, quote, professional or semi-pro, whatever the style would be that I think people would put a picture in their head of the WWE style of of wrestling. And you did this in the past. We had a bunch of conversations about this, um, you know, at Invisible Children and, and in the past. But you recently got back in a little bit or it kind of... Yeah, got your feet what wet. I'm doing. <laughs> got my feet wet. Um, I don't know if I'm going to you know the, the early phases of a midlife crisis or what. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've stepped back in the ring for the first time in over a decade. Wow, stunning, Tyler Dunning. Are you still keeping the yeah. same name? Probably not. I mean, I, that, that's the thing too. Is I, I'm not, um, I'm not pursuing this in the hope or anticipation of doing shows yeah it's a uh, hobby it was just like I, yeah i just wanted to you know move my body in a different way i suppose um sure reconnect with some old muscle memory i guess for a little context um yeah there's there's a lot of different forms of wrestling and people kind of get them muddled in their mind uh you and i as you said we were amateur wrestlers in high school also called collegiate style or folk style yeah um so the reason I did that, I so I was never really like an athletic kid. Um, I think I had tendencies toward it, but I never really found sports that I enjoyed. Uh, I was never much of like a team sports person. And uh, I think a lot of that kind of roots back to depression as well, where some, some things would get triggered when I was doing team sports and being around other people in that capacity. Yeah. Uh, and so when I was 14, I was flipping through you know the channels and I never really cared about pro wrestling up until that point but happened upon a wcw match of ray mysterio jr and billy kidman and just in that moment i saw these these two men that were classified as cruiserweights so they're like smaller people in terms of height and and weight yeah and um i just saw them performing this beautiful craft this beautiful art with their bodies and utilizing each other's bodies and that collaboration and partnerships to say like hey let's come together through this means of uh, like expressive false fake violence and put on a show and kind of heighten the range of this uh viewers emotional response and um bring bring them through the story arc and i mean this was all kind of subconsciously happening in my brain but in this match i said you know this is what i want to do with my body maybe in in the same way someone was watching um collaborative dance salsa or swing dance or something and said hey i want to move my body in that way with another person yeah and so from 14 on i just said this is what i'm going to do i'm going to become a pro wrestler and at that time, there was this kind of upsurgence of uh, wrestling biographies coming out. And yeah. one of them was this guy named Mick Foley who wrestled as Mankind. And he, in his book, he said, if you want to become a pro wrestler, one of the best things you can do is join the wrestling team. Yeah. And I was a junior at that point in high school. So I joined um, the high school wrestling team only because I wanted to become a pro wrestler. It wasn't, That's awesome. It wasn't one before the other. Um, and <laughs> so awesome. i joined the wrestling team and and really came to enjoy it a lot and found a sense of identity in that sport so then when i was 19 um you know instead of going around the country looking at universities to attend my father and i flew around the country and went to pro wrestling schools and that's awesome um 
you know, I went to a couple and uh, kind of had my short list of the ones I wanted to attend. And then that summer when I was, I think I was 18 or 19, attended a camp down in central Missouri. Uh, it was a, a, like a five-day camp. And by the end of it, they awarded a couple of the students these full scholarships to train for free. And I won one of those. And so then I said, fuck, I guess I'm moving to Missouri to become a pro wrestler. Yeah. So then I, I pursued that for, you know, probably five years and um, wrestled all over Missouri and the Midwest and the country and some international stuff as well. But uh, really I had some of the best training in the in the country and in the world. I was trained by this guy named Harley Race, who's revered as one of the best wrestlers in the 70s and 80s and really of all time. He was just this really hard knocks, uh, you know, non, no-nonsense type of guy, and he trained us very well. So now even to this day, so a good example is I got back in the ring a couple of weeks ago, and, um, you know, the trainer was like, you know, what's your background? Where do you come from? And I said, I used to wrestle in a small town called Eldon, Missouri. And he said, Oh, you're one of Harley's boys. Yeah. So even the way his reputation, yeah, his reputation, reputation is, is big. But yeah, I'll, I'll give you, uh, just a a little story of what getting back in the ring has been like, uh, cause it's funny, you know, uh, doing it in a 19 year old body opposed to a 35 year old body. But, you know, there's two promotions out here in, in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. Okay. One's called Defy, which is a very uh, good promotion, but they don't do any training, but they bring in amazing talent. Okay. The other one is called uh, 321 Battle, which I haven't seen one of their shows yet, but um, they're, they're not as like polished as Defy. And they do training in this little gym called Evolve. And so I was looking into it like a year ago. Yeah. And, like they don't have a website they have a facebook page they're not that responsive on like facebook messenger so i just like (laughs) there's a lot of shady things about the wrestling industry so you got to be really apprehensive on who you get affiliated with yeah because i mean it's your it's your livelihood it's your body like you could be wrestling with guys with really poor training and they're you know giving you a tombstone or something dropping you on your head yeah so I, I was pr- a bit trepidatious, and so I, I messaged them a little bit, and then a year went by, and then I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, I was like, I really want to get back in the ring. Yeah. And I said, you know, if I, when I was 19, I moved across the country to do this. I think I can drive three miles down to South Lake Union. Right. So um, I said, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And I went down there, not knowing what to anticipate, and I show up, I walk into this gym, they do Muay Thai, or like they do kickboxing, they do mixed martial arts, they do boxing, and then they do pro wrestling. And I walk in, and I think they're like this Muay Thai kickboxing training is going on. And I walk yeah. up to the counter, there's this woman there, and she's just on her phone, and I'm like, excuse me, and she's like, what? And I was like, <laughs> is there, I'm like, is there wrestling tonight? She's like, it was canceled. And I was like, well, someone told me to be here. She's like, I don't know, I don't work here. And I was like, what's going on? So then I turn around, and there's this this young guy kind of hobbling with crutches and a cast on his leg, but he's wearing a wrestling shirt. And I said, are you a wrestler? And he goes, yeah. And then he goes into this tirade about how he broke his leg. I didn't even ask. And I was like, 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 is there training tonight? He's like, I don't know. So then in the midst of this conversation, another guy walks up. He's wearing a singlet with a clown face on it. And he just starts talking to me. No, like, introduction. He just says, hey, like, check out my new kick pad. It's got a picture of Kelly Kapowski on it from Saved by the Bell. And he's like, I like to kick people and yell, Kapowski. (laughs) 
And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I look at his arm and he's got a hatchet man tattoo on his uh. deltoid. I'm like, this guy's a juggalo. <laughs> and I don't know if, I mean, if you're listening to this and you don't know what a juggalo is, Google it. Uh, not not gigolo. It's not a male prostitute. Juggalo. <laughs> it's a follow, follower of the insane clown posse. And I'm just like, what? I'm a 35-year-old man. What am I doing here? What have I got back, myself back into? And then the trainer shows up, and I'm like, "What do I? Like, how do I get in the ring? Who do I pay? What do I do?" He's like, "I don't know." And in my head, I'm just panicking. Yeah. But it all gets situated. So then we go. We start the training. I don't know what to anticipate. Like training when I was 19 in Missouri was brutal. It was so intense. Um, and I'm just like, I don't know if it's going to be that brutal. We'll see. Yeah. And the trainer at the, be- the very beginning, he's like, "All right, let's start with 100 jump squats." And I'm just Ooh, like, "Ooh, baby." Oh. Oh no! Yeah. So I get to like maybe fifteen jump squats. And my body is wasted. Yeah. And it just let alone the acid. next day. Yeah. Oh, and I'm like fighting the the, the urge to vomit. <laughs> and tra- this is the first ten minutes of class, and this class is two and a half hours. So then we get in the ring and we're running the ropes. We're doing front and back bumps. We're doing all the things you do. Yeah. And luckily, like, a lot of it came back very naturally. Like, I can run the ropes fine. I can bump just fine. Yeah. Some things didn't, though. Like, jumping over the top rope, couldn't do it, which is something I used to do with yeah. such ease. So it's been, yeah, it's been a, a fun experiment of saying, like, what uh, what are my limits? How can I redirect this effort in a way that better suits my new body? Um, but I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a fun venture, and I'm excited about it. But I, so I did it for two weeks, and then just a couple days ago, speaking of my old age, uh, <laughs> shingles, shingles fucking broke out on my forehead. Oh, no. So, yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know, it's, you know, it's like a resurgence of chicken pox. It lives in your, your spinal cord and attacks yeah. when you, it feels like your body's weak, a weakened state of immunity. So all of a sudden, I'm just watching TV, and my, my forehead breaks out in this massive... Um, painful festering right? wound yeah and so i can't get in the ring it's contagious so i think i have to take like two weeks off oh no i was just getting going and that's another you know another thing i think uh to an aging body listeners listeners will understand and that it seems the same like when i just try to get back in shape i go to the gym for a week or two and yeah. all of a sudden my knee hurts or right. my neck or who knows what i'm right there with you <laughs> just stemmied stemmied in the process by yeah. Who knows what. So, I mean, now you can just practice your jump squats so you can get that uh the, oh those 100 jump squats in by the time you, you know, you're two weeks I couldn't enough. walk. I couldn't walk for five days. Oh, I bet. I bet. It was brutal. That's like, but I loved it. That's also the part of when you go back to the gym and you haven't been for years or a good chunk of time and you, I'm going to do squats today. And then you can't walk for the next month. And, uh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> You're but like, you just Dang never it. go back. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, but I tried. <laughs> uh, that's the worst. That's that's fascinating. So what what is um. You you touched on it a little bit, but like, what is training for that go? I mean, there's different stereotypes, different people, and depending on who's listening and and your view on professional wrestling, you've got a different like idea of what that is. Um, you know, the words fake get thrown around a lot but it i think that cheapens the amount of 
effort and the amount of skill and honestly athleticism it actually takes to do some of the maybe maybe the right word is stunts or uh um like the the wrestling that takes place um in the ring yeah can you speak to that at all oh absolutely yeah um (laughs) yeah i mean in this day and age you hear a lot of talk about things like implicit bias and stuff like that and i would say there's certainly an implicit bias around professional wrestling and you hit it right on the head like you hear those words and you're like oh that's fake that's tripe that's cheap it's hack it's over the top it's misogynistic it's Mm -hmm. macho it's toxic masculinity it's all these things um and i unfortunately like like Vince McMahon's version of pro wrestling, which has uh, come to fruition in the form of WWF and now WWE, yeah, he has he's told a very specific type of story with with wrestling, and sure. unfortunately, that's really what most people know about. The way I equate it, I would I say like if you were just to turn on pop radio and listen to you know a Taylor Swift hit or well, who knows what, and say all music is equatable to that that's what music is it's kind of what we do with pro wrestling um but there's a whole independent scene just in the way there's a whole independent scene in the music world and that's where like the real true talent lies and the the good storytelling and people pushing the limits and um shifting and adapting the craft um and so for me it's like you get you get in the ring and to your first question, what's training like? It's it's really difficult, and the reason being is that it's a it's a such an astute mixture of anaerobic and aerobic activity. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, it's a really mixing up, you know, like sprinting and powerlifting. So, from one minute to the next, you're like hitting the ropes, running full speed, ducking under a man that's leapfrogging you, jumping over him when he goes for a drop down, and then taking a hip toss and taking an arm drag. And, you know, you're going from running full speed to then lifting a man who he might be 200, 250 pounds. And uh, it's just, it's really taxing on the body. Yeah. And so you Which have to I, train in a specific way. It's, I, it, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, I I really love your analogy of the powerlifting and sprinting at the same time because even yeah. in the amateur collegiate you know wrestling world that I'm familiar with and um, you know I've been a coach in and and whatnot, it's it's really hard to explain. And my first time even in that world was, um, you know, I was a soccer player. I, I could run for ninety minutes and not stop and. You know, I was in amazing shape and I was like, whatever. And I got talked into and taken to the wrestling room and, uh, you know, we're like messing around. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was exhausted. I was winded. I was out of breath. And it's a completely different, uh, like shape to be in, to be just even in, in the amateur, the, you know, the collegiate level or, um, folk style or whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, just reflecting back on like high school wrestling, you know, it's you do a six minute match where, yeah, how long is a soccer match like? Ninety minutes. Ninety yeah. minutes. Yeah, <laughs> but so you do six minutes and you do three increments of two minutes and you yeah. get a little break in between, and yet it is so physically exhausting. Physically exhausting. The hardest thing you'll do in six minutes. And and anybody Absolutely. that thinks that it's like they watch 
and I, I have a greater appreciation as I watch like the world level guys and the Olympic level guys as I'm watching them and I'm like, they have not let off the gas since they touched the mat. And oh, yeah. and then they go off and run sprints and, and cool down their cool down is like, you know, running and it's right. insane. It's insane. And so I love that analogy because it is a sprint. You're using every, you know, muscle, you're everything's tense and um and then you throw in the different moves and the different things that you guys are doing and the and the pro side of things and and it's a whole yeah. nother whole nother game yeah and similarly to um like amateur wrestling it, it, you you embed it in your body so that it becomes muscle memory you just right. train it over and over and over but another element of pro wrestling is that it is so cerebral in that so while you're, you know, you're performing in the physical way and having to be in incredible shape, you're also having to adhere to, you know, the base logic of storytelling. So you're ushering the crowd through the story in a way. And like, if you dissect any wrestling match, they're all the same Yeah. in terms of format and structure. And so you learn the structure, they call it ring psychology. Okay. And so you're building a match sometimes in, in the locker room, but oftentimes while you're just out there on the fly. Yeah. And you're performing in ways that, you know, have to logically make sense to a disbeliever because everyone comes into this saying like wrestling's fake. Sure. And so they're looking for the flaws in it. They want to see the seams. They want they want to feel elevated in a way of saying, Oh, I heard that wrestler call out this next move or yeah. I see where the faults are in this. But the best wrestlers are the ones that can can suspend disbelief to the point where like even to a disbeliever you sit there in awe and get goosebumps and say what they just did is amazing yeah and so you're trying you're trying to generate those moments for the viewer and so the best wrestlers aren't necessarily like the most physical or the ones that are in the best shape or that can perform the most amazing feats they're they're often the ones doing the most simplistic things but doing them so crisp and clean and doing them for a reason um a good I mean, good examples would be like you knock somebody down at the beginning of the mat, you cover them for the pin, and then it's like one, two, long two count, they kick out. Yeah. Um, that's something you often see at the end of the match, but you would never do that at the beginning of the match because you're not supposed to be that wasted yet. And so yeah. you kick out maybe at a one count. Um, gotcha. And these are all the things you have to think about. Or like you perform a big move at the beginning, and then you perform that same big move at the end, and it, you might react to it in the same way or you might fake the injury in the same way, but like you shouldn't because you should never start out with your big stuff. And, mm. uh, build. I don't know. A... There's, there's so much to it. And it, uh, in a funny way, it equates very similarly to storytelling and, and writing. Yeah. Uh, and I've learned so many odd lessons from it, but the, the point being that it, it's, it's a form of entertainment. It's a form of storytelling. It's not a sport. Um, but even though it is highly physical. Yeah. Uh, but recently someone asked me, like, from my years as a wrestler, what was the, the main thing I learned? And emphatically, I just kind of said that everything in life is just as fake as wrestling. And oh, so yeah. When, when people call it fake, I'm like, well, everything you watch on Netflix is fake. Yeah. Most of your interactions in your day-to-day life are fake. Yeah. Um, very, very few times do we have genuine authenticity in the mm. things we perform and do in life and yeah 
wrestling, I think, is just a representation of that, almost a characterization of that. And I think that's why so many people are drawn to it. And what's amazing about pro wrestling is that I could talk to my, you know, seven-year-old nephew about it, and he knows uh, everything about it. I could talk to our friends in Uganda about it. They know everything about yeah. it. I could talk to my 100-year-old neighbor. Yeah. Everyone has an idea and an opinion of what professional wrestling is. It's right. become quite ubiquitous culturally and globally. And because of that, it's very apparent that it is tapping into a base uh, form of storytelling in you know, the, the human spectrum. Yeah. What would you say your your like favorite or your like big your favorite big move is? Ooh. Um gosh, that's a good question. Mostly because I um I've always been a big fan of like the smaller, more technical wrestlers. Uh I get more excited about wrestlers who are really crisp and clean like examples i kind of came up in this era um when like the, the small wrestler was kind of elevated yeah in respect so like ray mysterio jr was always such a favorite of mine um yeah like eddie guerrero chris benoit dean malenko people from that era and that that time they just they were so clean in what they did and did it with such uh, like authority and intention so seeing like chris benoit just do you know any form of his submission holds looked so good and he sold them so well but mysterio like he he was so such a spectacle to watch so sure. seeing him do like you know jumping off the top rope and doing a hurricanrana onto somebody just the ease and grace with which he did that yeah. i always popped for that yeah that's fun. That's fun. Oftentimes, too, like, I might see these big moves and not applaud them. I might be like, that was really dangerous, and I don't know why these guys are doing that. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, there are some really dangerous things that people do and, like, put themselves... I mean, the wear and tear on the, you know, the the WWE guys, the WWF, like, ladies, like... It's in, it's incredible. Like, they they've go through and beat up their bodies quite intensely yeah it's not um well that's what's interesting about it is that you people look to wrestlers as kind of the epitome of health yes uh these people who are in in, in seemingly incredible good shape yeah but oftentimes it's um supplemental whether it's through human growth hormone or hormone or steroids or what have you and that's not to take i mean what at pro athlete isn't doing some sort of enhancement drug but yeah um that isn't to take away what they've done. The problem with it is that since it isn't a regulated sport, there's no off season. So like right. these, these people are expected to look amazing year round. And so they're on steroids kind of year round. They don't cycle off. They don't take like an estrogen blocker. Right. Uh, Cause you were supposed to do maybe like a six week cycle and then take at least six weeks off. And yeah. these people aren't doing that. And because of that being on the road year round, the, just the, general wear and tear the kind of drug culture that goes with it whether it's alcohol sure um anything else uh you get you start accruing injuries and then there's really no job security so that yeah. instead of taking time off you take pain pills instead uh yeah and so by the time you're you know 35 years old you're having heart attacks and that's that's not um an exaggeration i mean eddie Guerrero, yeah. i think died at the age of 36 of a right. heart attack yeah 
Yeah, crazy. And those are the things that, you know, don't get talked about or you don't think about necessarily in, in that world either. Um, one thing you started off when you first started off, I, I mentioned uh, Stunning Tyler Dunning. That was like your stage yeah. name. Um, where did that name come from? Did you? Did huh, just... I mean, just I, I think the obvious rhyme scheme of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I could trace it back maybe to my like senior senior trip class trip. You know, you take at the end of your, the school year. Yeah. We we were driving from Montana down to Salt Lake City um, to go to a theme park down there, and I think one of my good friends from my wrestling team on the, the bus ride down it said something like oh you should be stunning tyler dunning or something like that yeah but it just seemed like a easy natural fit and then if you look at the acronym it's std yeah. right uh, which which fits in with the kind of over the top motif yeah. of pro Sto- wrestling and so i never story. really went by that but fans would show up with signs that said std and they would chant it and that's awesome uh, so it came through a little bit and so you don't necessarily think now you'll be um, performing necessarily or on, on that you just like the training portion of it or do you have any ambitions to For now. yeah cool. yeah I don't want to go in with these these high expectations or aspirations to yeah perform and honestly um I think a big reason for that is uh, fear of injury where yeah absolutely um training training obviously um that's exactly what it is you're you're there to learn and to be safe and healthy where the problem with uh, like the type of show wrestling that goes on is that where that's where people pull out all the stops. And unfortunately, right. like on the independent scene, people are always trying to like out wrestle each other, outperform each other in ways yeah. that come through as just who can do the craziest shit. Yeah. And so my my fear would be like I would show up to a show and the promoter would say, "All right, Tyler, you're going to wrestle this guy tonight. It's going to be someone that I don't necessarily know very well or yeah. know at all." And then this person might say, "Okay, tonight I want to do a." quadruple backflip onto you while you're outside <laughs> on the ring apron and then we're gonna bump into the crowd over the guardrail yeah and i don't want to do I'm, i mean i don't want to do that shit there's no reason to do that for a crowd <laughs> of you know 50 people yeah um, a yeah. good example is this this young man i just met recently that had a broken leg and he, you know he said he did a, a moonsault off of the top rope into the crowd and what is a moonsault it's, uh, I, I'm, I apologize for all the jargon I'm throwing. No, it's okay. Uh, I, I'm just that one. Moonsault. That one sticks out to me that I've got to ask what a moonsault yeah. is. <laughs> um, moonsault is just kind of your run of the mill backflip onto somebody. Okay. Uh, where like a shooting star press would be a gainer, where you're doing the backflip forward. So yeah, doing, moonsault is just the backflip backwards. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, he's wrestling in front of a crowd of, I don't know, 50 to 100 people that gather every two weeks, and I don't know what his medical bill is going to be for that now, but he said one of the pieces of the bone in his foot is on the other side of his foot, Oh, and he's just kind of telling me this with a chipper romantic attitude, and I'm... You're like, like nope, what that's you... what I want to avoid. <laughs> yeah. So, it's just, I think, at that level of maturity where you get to the point, you just say, what what's the ROI on this? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like the, the crowd's going to pop for a moonsault. They're going to think it's cool, but you could get that same reaction from them kind of in the way of like what I was saying, like a Chris Benoit or Eddie Guerrero, yeah. they could get such a good reaction from the crowd doing something so simplistic just through the use of better storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Tyler, 
man, it has been really good to talk to you. You as well. I apologize uh, for everything. And, uh, <laughs> and for nothing at the same time. And for nothing. Um, no, I I really do appreciate you. I do really respect you and, and the things you're doing. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us. Is there anything you would want to, uh, you know, tell our listeners or any any advice, any thoughts, any information? I'd love for you to, you know, give them some plug your stuff one more time and oh goodness uh i mean i don't i don't know if i'm one to to deal out uh advice sure what i mean me i don't know if anybody is let's be honest (laughs) get through the day-to-days uh i think about you know like your theme of the show do do good yeah um and i like for me i'm i'm always trying to figure out what that good is um, thinking about like that roomy quote of like out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field and I'll meet you there. Or yeah. thinking about like karmic waves through a, a Buddhist notion where like positive waves and negative waves are kind of the same thing. And the, the point is to not generate waves at all and have any karmic residue when you leave this world. So mm. my current exploration uh, and focus is just like, what is the damage of the ego and how do I kind of mitigate that? How do I, yeah, you know, li- live as this conscious being. And, uh, one of my favorite representations of consciousness came from, um, Steinbeck. He said, he called it the tragic miracle of consciousness. We, we are these creatures that have some sort of separation, at least to our own knowledge of, of having consciousness and what that means now coexisting with nine billion, was it eight billion? We're at eight billion. Yeah, I think eight. Other living entities, that's just humans that also have this perceived form of consciousness. Yeah. Um, what, so what is good in that and what decisions do we make day to day that we don't even really think about that affect people globally or locally uh, in adverse ways or negative ways? I don't know. What I could deem good, most likely, is bad. Ultimately, so. One more time. I'm what just was keep, <laughs> I just said, what I deem good at this point could ultimately be bad for a lot of other people, sure, or sure. a lot of other living entities, plants or animal wise. Yeah. So for me, I just you know I do I do the work that I know I can do that brings peace to me, and I hope brings peace to others. And in that, it's just storytelling and it's writing. Yeah. And looking to connect with people who who finds some sort of connection in that too. Yeah. And I, I echo that. I mean, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. There's been a lot of, not a lot, but there's been a few people that have kind of pressured me into defining what do good and, and make a difference is. And I don't, I don't know that I want to do that. Um, I think it's much easier for us to, I think that if, that we can all tell you what is not good in some ways, you know, (laughs) like, you know what doing bad is, you know, when it's not something that's good. And so why do I need to define anything beyond that? And (laughs) staying open to the idea of, 
doing good. I don't, I don't know. I can't define necessarily specifically what doing good is. I can give you examples and I can give you things and causes to be a part of that I think are doing good. Do all of those have consequences? Absolutely. Both negative and positive, you know, everything we do, whether we eat a banana and throw the peel away or we put it in the compost. Yeah. Um, where'd that banana come from? You know? Exactly. Yeah. But <laughs> we could go, we could go pretty That's deep into I that. <laughs> What pesticides were used on that banana? And what yeah. watershed is that going? <laughs> right, right. But seriously, like some of those things are important. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just I I hear you. Thank you for that little bit. I I appreciate that actually. So sure. Where yeah. can people find you on social media? Do you? Oh, TylerDunning.com is my website. Tyler Dunning on the Instagram. Uh, my favorite way to connect is through the newsletter, like you said, yeah. because social media has become such a crapshoot. Where like yep. I can put something on Instagram, I don't know who's seeing it, I don't know who cares, yeah, I don't know if I care, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I really do enjoy. I put the newsletter out once a month. Yeah, that way I at least know it's making it to people's inboxes. I get a lot of analytics on my side where I can be like, oh, thirty percent of my readership open this newsletter yeah um, and then i can assess whether or not that makes me happy or not yeah but uh, <laughs> but at least um i know i'm putting out the content that i i deem like ethically worthy of sharing yeah. with and putting in the bandwidth and then um people can email me back and engage in that way and that feels good to me yeah how can we how can people and listeners subscribe to your newsletter yeah, if you just go to my website, uh, if you go to the contact section, you can sign up for it. Perfect, and we'll uh, we'll yeah. post some things too, just in the in the post here. So keep a oh, look out for that. Your heart. Yeah, get people. Hopefully, we can get a few people to sign up to you, to your newsletter, and uh, well, thank you to listen to some of your writing. And I I really would encourage people to buy your book. Um, obviously you obviously benefit from some of those sales as well. And it's just a good book. I think, I think it really, um, I really, I really loved it. I thought it was a great book. It really made me think it really made me, gave me a different perspective. And, um, yeah, I think it's a really great piece of work and I think you should be proud of that. So thank you, Tyler, thank you very much. I appreciate it, uh, for coming on. Thanks again. You're so welcome. (laughs) You're the best. Man, you're the best. <laughs> Everybody out there, remember, do good, make a difference, uh, find a way to, to be a part of our world um, beyond yourself. And uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks for taking part um, and listening to uh, our story and, and Tyler's story uh, about his life. Remember, uh, you can go to crazyfaceuno.com, check out our store, um, view our content, And engage with us right on uh, our posts and, and subscribe to the podcast. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. I love you all out there. Peace.